You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 94. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm going to read you a very special story, one that is near and dear to my heart. It's a story that never would have existed if not for two extraordinary men who I've been honored to call friends. It is also the story that is responsible, indirectly, for everything you've heard in the last two years that I've been producing this podcast. Let me give you a little backstory. When I started podcasting Metamore City in 2007, there were already a number of authors releasing their fiction in this new format. One of the first was T. Morris, who helped create the podcast novel with his fantasy pirate adventure, Moravi. T's second podcast novel, Billaba Battings in the Case of the Singing Sword, was the book that inspired me to launch Metamore City as a podcast. There was another author podcasting at that time, who started just a few months before I did. His name was Patrick Holyfield, but everybody called him P.G. He launched an epic fantasy novel called Murder at Avedon Hill, which introduced listeners to the land of Cairn. It was a fantasy world with a rich and detailed history, where the gods had walked among humanity. It was a story with mystery and intrigue and deep characters. It was easy to see that people who liked Metamore would probably like Cairn as well, and vice versa. So Patrick approached me in early 2008 and invited me to be his nemesis. This was a thing some podcast authors were doing back then. They would identify another author whose work was reaching a similar audience, and they would publicly name each other as their arch-rivals who they were sworn to defeat. We recorded messages for each other's shows, made comic strips poking fun at each other, we even got each other t-shirts for our respective podcasts, and then had our picture taken together at Balticon. It was great fun, and the healthy competition kept both of us on our game. Eventually, Patrick finished podcasting Murder at Avedon Hill, and I finished my first season of Metamore City. Patrick went on to other projects, including a podcast about Game of Thrones called Beyond the Wall. I started working on things unseen, but after a while I stalled out and I stopped podcasting. I didn't even publish Things Unseen in print until 2013, and for a while I stopped writing almost entirely. But then, in the summer of 2014, Patrick was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. It was aggressive, and already in an advanced stage. There was nothing the doctors could do. On August 17th, I recorded one last video message for my beloved nemesis. On August 20th, he was gone. A few weeks later, T. Morris contacted me to let me know about a special project he and Val Griswold Ford, another member of our tribe, were putting together. A tribute book in Patrick's memory. Called Tales of a Tesla Ranger, this anthology would feature stories written by Patrick's friends and dedicated to his memory. The proceeds from the book would go to help support Patrick's family. Apart from a Metamore City live show, I hadn't written much of anything for over a year. But for Patrick, I went back to the keyboard and started writing. I took all of my pain and grief at his loss, 
and all of my tangled emotions about my own creative work, and I channeled them into a story. That's the story I'm going to share with you now. You can find a print copy in the book Tales of a Tesla Ranger, but this is the first time it has appeared in audio. I hope you enjoy it. Nemesis by Chris Lester The master of the city sat brooding in his tower, his lanky form hunched and folded in the apes of his high window. Dark brows rode low over pensive blue eyes as he stared out at his domain. Long fingers drummed against the polished stones, a syncopated staccato rat-tat-tat, aimless and unconscious. It was the only part of him that moved. A door opened quietly at the far end of the chamber, and two small forms slipped inside. He knew them at once, and so paid them little mind. One male, one female, they were otherwise so alike that visitors to the tower often had difficulty telling them apart. Both short and wiry, pale from long hours laboring in his darkened halls, with long and pointed ears jutting out through tousled masses of curly hair. Though no bigger than children, and often overlooked by outsiders, they were loyal, hard-working, and competent, and for these virtues he prized them. Indeed, without them, his city would surely never have been built. For however much that matters, he thought grimly. All those years of toil, the few shining moments of greatness, and look at me now. A tired old fool brooding over monuments to past glories. What have you done lately, eh, master? You should have retired years ago, when you were at your peak, and saved yourself the embarrassment of this stagnation. His composure must have slipped as the dark thoughts overtook him. The two little elves had barely entered the chamber when they shrank back, their body language now uncertain. The master watched them from the corner of his eye as they put their heads together, conferring in hushed voices. He did not expect to find much interest in whatever they had to say, but they must have considered it important if they were willing to disturb him here. He will be glad of this, he heard the female say to her companion, who looked unconvinced. These are good tidings. A dry, baritone chuckle escaped the master's throat, surprising even him. Good tidings, Clippy. I won't deny I could use them. He looked down at the city below, its glistening spires twinkling with countless tiny lights, each one a tiny mockery of his once grand designs. Look at it, he said, disgusted. Barely one new tower in five years. Oh, the newcomers still tell me what a marvel it is, how intricate and complex its architecture, how beautiful its artistry. But we've stagnated. Look over there. He jutted his chin at a construction site half a mile away, a handful of steel beams arising from the concrete foundation. That tower's been waiting to be finished for a year now, and what have we done with it? Next to nothing. Rat-tat-tat went his fingers against the stone. While well, here I sit, my days consumed with tedious minutia. 
distractions, a more brutally honest voice said within him. You busy yourself with the trivial instead of daring to attempt greatness. The male servant wrung his hands nervously. But, boss, we're just waiting for you to say the word. You could finish it any time you wanted to. The master's jaw clenched, and he nodded. I know, Stimpy. I know. He looked out at the city below and fell silent again. But that would mean risking your oh-so-vaunted reputation on something new, the inner voice said savagely. And you're afraid you can't measure up to it anymore. But you can't fail if you don't try, eh, old boy? After a long moment, the one he called Clippy cleared her throat. Um, boss, those good tidings? It's about your nemesis. He looked up sharply at her. Lord Holyfield? Well now, this changes everything, doesn't it? Long fingers danced quickly over his close-trimmed black beard, and lips split apart in a fierce grin. He sprang from his seat in the window, and strode with sudden energy he thought lost to a long wooden table at the far end of the chamber. Four old braziers stood at the corners of the table, their oil chambers filled by the servants but long unused. At last, he breathed, and waved his hand. In the wake of his fingertips, symbols of blue flame appeared. They hung before him in mid-air until, with a curt nod of his head, he sent them dashing to opposing corners of the table, igniting the oil within the braziers. Under the illumination of blue and amber, a large map sat open, depicting a lush land of woodlands, plains, seas, and mountains. The master brushed away a thick layer of dust that had covered the map. Too long has the land of Cairn been silent, he said, a growing energy welling up behind the quiet words. Lord Holyfield has been away, they said, consumed with his efforts north of the wall. No movement on our borders, no great building projects back home in Cairn. He clenched his fist, shook it once in mid-air. I knew he was up to something. Well, whatever it is, we shall exceed it. He looked up at the two elves, grinning and wide-eyed. Tell me, what news have you heard of my dear nemesis? Snippy swallowed and looked away. Clippy pushed out her chest. It is a new age for our beloved Meta- Oh, spare me the speeches, you silly imp, the master snapped. What is Lord Holyfield planning? Nothing, boss. Not anymore. Clippy spread her little arms wide beaming. Lord Holyfield is dead. The words struck him like a knife between the ribs. As quickly as it had come, the new vitality that had filled him withered and died. He felt dizzy and found himself leaning forward on the table for support. Dead, he breathed. What? Who did this? Who killed him? No one, sire. Snippy said. His words were quieter than Clippy's, heavy with grief. It was an illness of some kind. Illness? Holyfield? Don't take me for a fool, the master said scornfully. I saw Lord Holyfield barely three months ago at the royal court. He was in fine health, fine as I've ever seen him. 
If he had fallen ill, I'd have heard. One of his other rivals must have poisoned him. Clippy grinned, oblivious. Don't worry, boss. Nobody upstaged you. The fates themselves struck him down. The king's physician said the sickness had been growing inside him for a long time, in secret. By the time he felt the effects, there was nothing they could do. You couldn't have gotten better results if you'd cursed him yourself. The master shook his head, his eyes unfocused. I can't believe this. Then when I last saw him, he was already dying. My nemesis stood before me, already doomed, and neither of us knew it. He looked down at the map of Cairn. What becomes of his realm now he is gone? Well, boss, I'm betting your generals will have some ideas, Clippy said gleefully. Shall I send them your summons? The master's head snapped up, eyes flashing with anger. What? Seize Cairn? How dare you say such a thing? The elf took a step back, her hands raised in alarm. Boss, I just... He was your nemesis. You can make your victory complete in one campaign. My victory? You think this is victory, you fool? He knocked over one of the braziers with an angry swipe of one hand, sending a cascade of burning oil over the map of Cairn. The parchment was ablaze in seconds. That is my so-called victory. Nothing but ashes. He stretched out his arms and flung his head back at the ceiling. Damn you, Holyfield! You were my nemesis! The very best of enemies! The greatest of rivals! Who hounded you across fairy in the dark realms beyond? Who unleashed the undead on Avedon Hill? Who built this city to rival the glories and wonders of your precious cairn? I did! It was me! Tears were streaming from his eyes, and now his whole body shook with a heavy sob. He fell to his knees, like a marionette with his strings cut, and his head fell onto his chest. We were so good for each other, he said, his voice thick with tears, each measuring himself against the other, each pushing the other to do more, to go further, to be greater. And now the fates have snatched you from me, without even giving me the satisfaction of beating you. He closed his eyes and shook his head. I was supposed to beat you. At this, he fell silent, except for the quiet sobs and the pat, pat, pat of teardrops falling on stone. The two servants stood there, heads bowed, wisely saying nothing. After a long time, the master spoke again. Lord Holyfield had daughters. What is to become of his children? The other nobles are making arrangements, Clippy said soberly. They'll be taken care of, boss. The master nodded. Good, he croaked, rising slowly to his feet. He made his way back to the window. The lights of the city glittered, unchanged. And yet, everything had changed. The master stroked his beard, tapping his fingers against his lips. 
how quickly our lives end. When last we met, I thought surely Lord Holyfield and I would match wits many more times in the years to come. But the fates have cut his thread short, without warning. He will build no new towers, bring no new dreams to life. His story is ended, and mine is not. He shrugged one shoulder. For now, at least. The two servants looked up. What do you want to do, sire? Snippy asked. For a moment, the master said nothing. What do I want to do? It was the question that had plagued him for years now. When Lord Holyfield had been active in Cairn, the answer had been obvious. I want to prove myself better than my nemesis. But then Holyfield's quests had taken him away from Cairn. For a time, the master had thought that meant victory, and he had grown cautious, conservative, hesitant to risk all that he had won to do something new. And in time, that caution had turned to paralysis. Now what do I have to show for it? Holyfield is dead. What good did it do me to conserve my resources, when the man for whom I saved my strength will never return to test it? He took a deep breath, wiped the tears from his face, straightened his spine, and turned to look at his two servants. He felt a surety in his footing, a balance in his core that had long been absent. For the first time in years, he felt like the master of the city. We can no longer rely on our nemesis to drive us to greatness, he said. We can no longer measure ourselves against the accomplishments of our adversaries, however worthy they may be. Death is a thief, and time is not our friend. The deeds we would do, we must do for ourselves, measuring ourselves against ourselves. Henceforth, no man is our nemesis, only death himself, and against him there is only one path to victory. Victory? Clippy asked, dubiously. Against death? Aye, the master said, smiling grimly. Lord Holyfield has shown us the way. Death has taken him, but what of Cairn? The land he built shall live forever, and all who see its wonders will honor the name of Holyfield. That is victory over death, my friends, to build something worthy of remembering. He turned to look back at the foundations of the unfinished tower. Send word to the builders. We shall resume construction immediately. There is much to do and fates alone know how much time to do it. Yes, Lord Master, the elves replied, and then they scampered off, their excitement evident in their hastened footsteps. The Master was left alone in his chamber. Alone. The solitude had never concerned him before. In fact, he had welcomed it, embraced it as he would a concubine. This silence, though, this privacy, was far different. It was as if he could feel the loss of the man against whom he had measured himself for so many years. It was like a missing tooth, a thing that had once been unobtrusive, now impossible to ignore, its size grown larger by its sudden absence. He wondered what they would say at the royal court when he returned there next spring. Lord Holyfield had always been a colorful presence there, but now? Though no one would see his face, 
he would loom like a shadow over all that was said and done within those halls. Impossible to ignore. His attention returned to the smoldering map. Pieces of the realm that had taunted him for so many years were now dancing upward in an imperceptible breeze. The edges of parchment glowed red and orange as they floated in the air, curling into themselves before plummeting back down to the grand table. That is victory over death, my friends, to build something worthy of remembering. No, he was not alone. His nemesis would always be there, whispering from the shadows, driving him on. He looked out at the horizon, toward the distant land of Cairn, and smiled. Rest now, my nemesis, he said fondly. I shall make you proud. The End And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked this little tribute to P.G. Holyfield, I encourage you to check out Tales of a Tesla Ranger. You'll find lots of other lovely stories in there, including contributions by Jared Axelrod, Katie Brisky, Scott Roche, and Philippa Ballantyne, all of whom you've heard me interview on this podcast. You'll also find some stories from P.G. himself that you might not have read anywhere else. All proceeds from the book go to the P.G. Holyfield Children's Trust. You'll find a link in the show notes. Norman Cousins said, Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. That's why I write, folks, to bring those things outside of myself so they can live beyond me. So, let's see how I'm doing this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,900 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 700 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 123 days without breaking my chain. I was only able to get in four days of work on my new Metamore City Live audio drama, Rafak Aliri and the Ghostly Bride. I hit a point in the story where I didn't know where I was going, so I had to stop for a night and do some planning before I could figure out what I needed to write next. As a result, the audio drama is not yet finished. Hopefully next week I'll have better luck wrapping this thing up. This week I also interviewed Philippa Ballantyne about her new novel, Immortal Progeny. We had a great conversation about this new series, and about the role of religion in fantasy fiction. I'll be bringing that interview to the podcast next week. This March is a special month in the world of podcasting because we're kicking off the first Tripod Initiative. Did you know that most people around you have never listened to a podcast? It's true. According to a study conducted by the Pew Research Center in 2016, 64% of Americans have never listened to even a single episode of any podcast. Even more amazingly, 51% of Americans over age 12 don't even know what a podcast is. The Tripod Initiative is trying to change that, and here's how it works. Think of someone you know, a friend, a coworker, a family member. Now think of a podcast that they would enjoy. It doesn't have to be The Raven and the Writing Desk. It could be any podcast that you think they'd like. Now, go up to them and say, Hey, I've got this cool thing I want to share with you. I think you'll like it. 
then show them how to subscribe to that podcast. Seriously, just ask to borrow their phone and bring up the podcast app right there in front of them. They probably have no idea it's so easy to get so much awesome audio content for free. You'll be doing them a favor, honest. Now, once you're done, go on Twitter or Facebook and tell the world what podcast you just introduced your friend to. Use the hashtag Tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. If we all do this with just one person this month, we can spread the joy of podcasts to a whole bunch of new listeners. Remember, that's hashtag Tripod. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this week. Please welcome John and Sue. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the best thing you can do to support me. For just a few dollars a month, you can get sneak peeks, art previews, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, all patrons receive my weekly Behind the Episode podcast, where I provide additional commentary on the story and the inspirations behind it. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the reward levels and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. This week, people wrote in with their thoughts about my weird fiction story, Maternal Instinct, which aired in episodes 92 and 93. I asked you to let me know what you thought of this story, and you delivered. Joel writes, First part, sounds like a romance story about a pregnant woman desperately looking for a good stepfather for her child, with the gimmick that she's a neo-pagan of a somewhat cultish faith. Second part, oh shit, she worships Shabnigarath. Oh shit, indeed. Eero says, This was a great mythos-style story. You should write more of them. He then suggests something in the action-horror genre, like the Delta Green series or J.M. Perkins' Chemo series. I don't know if that sort of thing is ever going to be in my wheelhouse, but I won't rule it out. After all, I never thought I'd write a story like this one either. Sean says, What's it say about me that the minute I heard Black Goat connected to Great Mother, I immediately knew the deity this little cult worshipped, and that I was half expecting this to turn into a sort of prequel to the Dunwich Horror? Well, Sean, I think it means that your membership card to the H.P. Lovecraft Society is probably up to date. Those of you who are patrons to my Patreon feed can check out the Behind the Episode podcast for the last couple weeks, if you want to hear more about the inspirations that I drew on for this story. Paul writes, I think I've heard every story you've ever podcast, and this one is different. I liked all the others. Most of them I liked a lot. But this one is different. Maybe it took me across a line I don't want to cross. Maybe I just can't relate to either of the main characters, even a little. I don't know. Maybe I'll figure it out. Thank you for your honesty, Paul. This story was definitely an experiment, and it's no surprise that it doesn't work for everybody. I didn't even like it when I finished it, largely because it did cross lines that I wasn't comfortable with. I was just glad to have it out of my system. It wasn't until this year that I was able to go back and see the things that I did right with it. At the opposite end of the reaction spectrum, Mark wrote in to say this, Whoa, Chris, this was an excellent story. I'd say you more than nailed your first foray into the mythos. You subverted and exceeded the genre. You see, you have achieved something that almost no one ever does in the mythos. Your main character was in the know, giving the story a unique perspective, but you managed to keep the audience in the dark. 
You turned up the creeping dread with a POV character who actually did sort of understand what was going on. Nobody does that. And it made for a hell of a ride. This was definitely a dark story, but I really enjoyed it. I'd love to read more in this new offshoot of the Cthulhu universe. Thanks, Mark. I always wondered what this story would feel like for people hearing it for the first time, who didn't know what was coming at the end. For added fun, I recommend going back and listening to the story again, and pay attention to the different layers of meaning that you notice in Cindy's narration. I'm very glad to hear that I didn't give away the game too soon. Daniel said, Well, that ending was... not surprising, as you gave more than a few hints, but it honestly was very well done. I enjoy dark stories, slash movies, and it very much fits with something from the Cthulhu-style mythos. I can see why something like this would be so hard to work your way through, based on the rest of your writing, but I think it's a solid story. I like the main character's guilt, even if it didn't last, and I admit I'd love to know what she and her son go on to accomplish, but it's better to leave that up to our imagination. I also appreciated you breaking it up, slash recording it the way you did, so I could push my way through it all in one go, and not have any breaks between the two parts. Thanks, Daniel. I agree, Cindy's moment of indecision helped her feel more human to me. And even people who do bad things can wrestle with their conscience. Cindy's moral compass is warped, but she still has one. Abigail Hilton, author of the excellent Guild of the Cowrie Catchers and a bunch of other cool stuff, wrote in to say this. Hey Chris, I enjoyed your Cthulhu story. You asked for feedback about how we perceived it. I wasn't actually sure until you told us afterward that it was a Cthulhu story, but that might be a feature rather than a bug. Or it might just be that I'm a little dense about this genre. I remember hearing something about Shoggoths in the chanting during the birth and thinking, wait, is this Cthulhu? But sometimes people throw in a nod to Cthulhu without actually intending to write a Cthulhu mythos story, and that's what I thought until you spelled it out. Then it all made sense. Unquote. Yeah, one of the things I like about the mythos is that it's big enough and diffuse enough that you can tell lots of different kinds of stories with it. Lovecraft himself wrote lots of stories that were in the world of the mythos, but never involved Cthulhu or Dagon or any of their fishy ilk. Shubnigarath is one of the lesser-known deities of the mythos, but she's an interesting one because of the whole fertility goddess, mother of monsters thing she's got going on. I'm glad the story works for people who aren't deeply knowledgeable about the setting. Abby continues, Early in the story, it was pretty obvious that something sinister was going on, but my first thought was praying mantis woman. I thought she would eat him in order to have her weird baby, probably because the first thing I tumble to is something in nature, and this is a lot more common in nature than a baby eating a father. You provided enough clues in the second half that it became clear the baby was going to do the eating, but I still wasn't sure whether it would eat both parents or only one. She asks, aren't I enough for my son, at one point? That was my question going into that scene. I was relieved when it was only the one parent. Anyway, good job. Thanks, Abby. Before I knew where this story was going, I did think about going the praying mantis route. I decided to try something different, but I left in Cindy's colorful and carnivorous metaphors to clue in the audience that there was something not quite right about her. And if you're looking for a parallel to nature, I'd suggest the parasitoid wasp. These nasty little critters find an unsuspecting insect and lay their eggs inside it, so the hapless host becomes their baby's first meal. 
Cindy does wonder whether she would be enough for her son, because if there hadn't been another host for him to consume and take over, he would have done it to Cindy. Cindy grapples with whether she should have taken that route. Is her faith in the Great Mother strong enough that she would be willing to sacrifice herself for her offspring? But in the end, she decides that her son needs someone to look after him, to help him learn how to function in the human world. So she continues with her plan and finds him another host. Thank you all for the feedback. Whether you liked it, loved it, or hated it, I'm so glad you took the time to share your thoughts with me. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. And don't forget about the Tripod Initiative. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with my interview with author Philippa Ballantyne. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2014 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.